the greatest highlight of my life other than the day when I met Christ as my Lord and Savior was the day when I was married. I remember it like it was yesterday. Claire walking down the aisle and we entered into that covenant relationship before our friends and our family. That was a special day and I still greatly love my bride. She is my bride and next month we will celebrate 15 years of marriage. Excited about that. God has been really, really good to us. I said that in the last service. I talked to some folks after the, the second service, and uh, I was informed that they were going to celebrate their 64th wedding anniversary in September. So I said, well, we're still working on that. So, <laughs> but it's been a great 15 years, and, and, and I, I love Claire uh, dearly, which that little insight may help you to understand something about Jesus and his love for our church, because Jesus calls his church, listen, his bride. That's how Jesus loves us. He loves us like a, like a groom loves a bride. He cares deeply about his church. And we'll see this in the passage we're going to study this morning. We're going to see some insight into how Jesus loves his church in Revelation chapter 2. So turn there with me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to continue our summer sermon series titled A Message to the Church, and we are studying seven specific messages that Jesus had for seven specific first century churches in Asia Minor, and we're taking those messages and applying them to our church. So this is a message from Jesus to us, Longview Point Baptist Church. Revelation chapter 2, verse 18, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. The Bible says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we pause to give you glory and to recognize your presence with us, and we are grateful, Lord, that you 
meet with your church and you speak to your church and you work in the hearts of your people. And Lord, we come to you today expectant. Lord, expecting you to work to mold us and make us further into the image of Christ. We want the, the name of Jesus to be exalted and lifted up in this place. So I pray that you would just work in our midst. Help us to see the glory and the power and the grace of Christ today. And we ask and pray all of this in his name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, this summer we are examining some messages that Jesus had for first century churches. Now the context is found in chapter 1. And we saw that the Apostle John was in exile on a barren island called Patmos. He was preaching the gospel in the Roman Empire, and they did not want him preaching the gospel. The Roman Emperor did not want him preaching the gospel. So they put him into exile, into prison on this island. And while John was on this island in the late first century, Jesus Christ appeared to him in a vision and gave him a series, series of messages that he was to record and pass on to churches. And these series of messages begin with seven specific messages for seven specific churches in Asia Minor. So probably what would happen is John wrote these messages down and gave them to a messenger who would leave the island of Patmos and sail to the mainland of Asia Minor landing probably in Ephesus. And we see the first message, it's found there in chapter 2, was to the city of Ephesus, the church in that city of Ephesus. Then he went probably about uh, 40 miles to the north to the city of Smyrna, then maybe another 50 miles north to the city of Pergamum. But then he would begin a southeast trek down to the city of Thyatira, another 40 miles to get to that city and give them this message. Now Thyatira was an interesting city it was known for its large number of trade guilds or unions. It was, it was known for these, these guilds built on some certain trade or, or manufacturing of a certain implement. Uh, most often mentioned in inscriptions found from this time period were shoemakers, uh, makers and sellers of dyed cloth, and bronze smiths. Those were the different guilds that were found in the city of Thyatira. Now, this reality may give us some insight into how the gospel got to Thyatira. There's an interesting connection here in the Bible. Hold your place, but turn to Acts chapter 16 with me. Acts chapter 16. In Acts 16, we see some insight into Paul's second missionary journey. He comes into the city of Philippi with his missionary companions. And it says in Acts chapter 16, verse 13... On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics. So she was a part of the guild that dyed and sold purple fabrics. She was a worshiper of God. In other words, she believed in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She worshipped him, but she did not know the rest of the story. She did not know about Jesus. It says, she's a worshiper of God, and she was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she prevailed upon us. So one of the first converts there in Philippi was Lydia, a citizen of Thyatira, part of the, 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 the fabric guild. And perhaps... She went back to Thyatira and shared the gospel or maybe some relationship she had uh, 
was used by God to get the gospel to that city. We don't know that for sure, but it is an interesting connection. So back in Revelation chapter 2, this city was founded upon these different guilds or unions. Now each guild had its own patron god or goddess. And so the religious life of Thyatira was, was really influenced by these guilds. These guilds would have these major feasts that were dedicated to their patron god or their patron goddess. So a Christ follower in this city that said, you know what, I can't be a part of that feast because that's paying tribute to a pagan false god or a pagan false goddess. I can't be a part of that. If they made that stand, they would lose credibility and goodwill and maybe even lose their job in that guild. And so there was a price to pay for standing for Christ in the city. The primary god worshipped in Thyatira was Zeus, I'm sorry, uh, Apollo, the sun god, the son of Zeus, a false god. That was the primary worship happening in this city. Now, as we see Jesus address the handful of believers in this city, we see some interesting thoughts about Christ and his relationship to the church. And I want to give you four truths about Christ and his church that will really help us to understand what it means to be a part of the church and how we ought to respond to Jesus. Number one, I want you to see that Christ cares about his church. Christ cares about his church. Back in Revelation 2, look what the Bible says there in verse 18. To the angel, that word is angelos, it could be translated messenger, I believe it speaks of the pastor of the church. To the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Thyatira, right. So he's addressing the pastor so he could pass on this message to the church in this city. Now it's interesting here that Jesus is addressing the church in Thyatira. It's interesting because Thyatira was the least important of the seven cities that Jesus addresses in Revelation 2 and 3. It did not have the intellectual or architectural influence of the other cities. It was not a cultural center that people would travel to to marvel at the buildings or to hear great philosophers teach. It, it was a, a blue-collar city known for its trade guilds. Uh, it was a, a smaller city. It was not important in the scheme of things in Asia Minor. So we see here that Jesus not only addresses Pergamum last week, the capital city of Asia Minor, he also addresses the church in this blue-collar city of Thyatira, the most insignificant town mentioned in these two chapters. As a matter of fact, the longest message... Among these seven messages is the message from Jesus to the church in Thyatira. He spends more effort focusing on this church in this insignificant town than any other church. And so what do we learn from that? What do we glean from that? That Jesus cares about the church in Thyatira. Here's what we learn. There are no unimportant churches or unimportant places or unimportant people from Christ's perspective. There are no Unimportant churches, unimportant places, or unimportant people from Christ's perspective. We live in a day where, in, in church culture, we think that the bigger the church, the more strategic it is, or more influential it is, or the more important it is. But that's not how Christ looks at his churches. Mega church, or small church, city church, country church, Jesus cares about all of his churches. And we think, well, just because a church is a mega church and a big church, it must be more important than all the other churches. That is not true from Christ's perspective, which is an important word for us today because what we see developing in North America is, it, are these different cults of personality. 
we see people flocking around a major personality, and, and, and we see big, 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 and we think big, 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 big is successful or, or more important in God's eyes. That is not the case. Every one of Christ's churches is important to Him. Now, there are some mega churches in our land, I mean big churches that run thousands of people, that are faithful gospel-preaching churches. They believe the Word of God, they proclaim the gospel, making a great impact in their community, making a great impact in their world. I thank God for those mega churches, and those mega churches that are faithful to the gospel, that are meeting this morning, are experiencing the presence of Christ in their midst. They're experiencing the blessing of God. God's hand is on those churches. But let me tell you about the first church I pastored. I graduated from college and had about six months before I was to be married and move up to this area to start seminary. And I was in North Florida. And there was a church called Mount Gilead Baptist Church. And their pastor was very, very sick. He could not pastor. And so for six months, this church asked me to come and, and pastor the church. So I got married and I moved. It was a great experience. Sweet people. It was a, it was a small church. To get there, you had to get to the end of the blacktop. And then you had to keep going. And you curve around these dusty dirt roads, and if you knew where you were going, you eventually found Mount Gilead Baptist Church. On a good Sunday, we'd have about 40 people in worship. And, and that's the first church I pastored. Now, that church is still going strong. They're, they're still meeting today on a, on a dirt road in North Florida. And I tell you this, just like God's hand and blessing is upon the great mega churches of our land, Jesus is also meeting with Mount Gilead Baptist Church this morning, too. Because every church is important in his eyes. Big church, little church, medium church, every church is important from his perspective. Which leads me to this question. If the church is important to Jesus, remember he calls the church his bride. If the church is important to Jesus, shouldn't it be important to us? I mean, if it matters that much to Christ, if he loves his church to that degree, shouldn't we care about the church and want to be a part of what God is doing through his local churches? Truth number one we see is that Christ cares about his church. He's addressing the, the church in the blue-collar town of Thyatira, not just the capital city. Also, this church off the beaten path gets a direct message from Christ. Christ cares about his church. Here's the second truth we see. Christ knows everything about his church. Christ knows what's going on in his churches. Christ knows what's going on in, in Longview Point. So Ed, what does Christ know? Well, first of all, Christ knows the good things. Look in verse 19. Verse 18, he says, The Son of God, Jesus is describing himself here, who has eyes like a flame of fire. This speaks of his omniscience. He knows everything. His feet are like a burnished bronze. It speaks of his power and his authority. Here's what he says. I know. Jesus knows some things about this church. I know. What does he know? Well, he says, I know your deeds. This church was busy working for Jesus. They were doing some things for Christ. They were not sitting on the sidelines. They were not out of the game. They were not spectator Christians. They were involved in serving Christ. And Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing for me. And I know your love. This church was characterized by love. It's interesting when he, when he uh, addresses the church in Ephesus, he says, you've lost your first love. 
But the church of Thyatira says, I know about your love. Love is the cardinal virtue of Christianity. It's, it's the main thing. You say, wait, why do you say that? Well, didn't the Lord say that the great commandments are twofold? Number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and your soul, and your mind. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If we're going to represent Christ rightly in this world, we're going to be people that are characterized by love. And Jesus, I know your love. You're, you're people of love. And I know your faith. Faith is taking God at his word and adjusting your life accordingly. They believed what God said, trusted his promises, and served him in line with his word and with his truth. They were people of great faith and belief in God. They were people of service. These were foot-washing Christians. They didn't mind serving folks that had needs, probably within their body and those outside of their body. They were people that were characterized by service. And Jesus said, I know your perseverance. That word carries with it the idea of steadfastness. Living in Thyatira among all these trade guilds that worship pagan gods and goddesses is probably very intimidating. But he's saying, I know that you're staying strong. You're not backing away from the truth. You are being faithful to Christ. I know your steadfastness. I know your perseverance. And then look what he says. I know that your deeds of late are greater than at first. In other words, this church had made some progress. They had matured. They had grown. They were doing better than at the first. They were seeing... Uh, progress in the right direction. So Jesus, I know all the good things that are happening. You've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Nothing we do for Jesus goes unnoticed. Because Jesus knows everything. Jesus sees everything. This past week, we were having family church. And I was reading to my family one of my favorite stories, the story of Elijah, when Elijah was taken up into heaven by a whirlwind and a chariot of fire. That's pretty cool, right? I mean, Elijah didn't die. All of a sudden, he was walking along with Elisha, and this whirlwind comes up, and this chariot of fire just swoops him up, and that's how he gets to heaven. And let me just go on record as saying, I want to go like that too. Wouldn't that be cool? Now, if, if, if Jesus tarries, probably the way we're going to get to heaven is through the, the doorway of death. I prefer the chariot of fire, but, but if Jesus tears, it's probably going to be death. And I asked my family the question, why did God take Elijah up like that? There's only two times in Scripture that, that people avoid death to get to heaven. One is Elijah, the other is Enoch in the book of Genesis. I mean, all of a sudden, they just, they're just there in heaven with, with the Lord. Why did God do this for Elijah? And here's the conclusion we came to. God was honoring his life. He was a faithful, courageous uh, servant of the Lord. And to pay tribute on his life, God took him into heaven with a, with a chariot of fire and a whirlwind. Pretty awesome. But can I tell you this? It doesn't matter how you get to heaven. If you live faithfully for Jesus in this life, when you get there, Jesus will say to you, listen, well done, good, and what? Faithful servant. So God honored Elijah with a whirlwind and chariot of fire. But if we're faithful to Christ, he'll honor us by saying, Well done! Nothing we do for Jesus goes unnoticed. He sees it all. And you may feel unappreciated. No one else sees what you're doing. No one else sees how you're serving. But Jesus knows everything done for the glory of his name. He knows all the good things. That's true of Longview Point. Jesus knows all the good things happening here. Listen, I don't know all the good things happening at Longview Point we got people doing some remarkable stuff behind the scenes. 
I mean, you wouldn't believe all the good things that are happening here, that people are doing to reach out and make a difference. I don't know all the good things, but Jesus does. And Jesus takes notice. So he says, I know all your, good, all your good deeds, all your works, all your love, all your faith, all your... St- I know it. But also, Jesus knows the troubling things in his churches. Look what happens in verse 20. But, Jesus says, I have this against you that you tolerate. Everybody say tolerate. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So there is a woman in the church that Jesus calls Jezebel. And this was probably not her real name, but Jesus calls her Jezebel to make a point. Now Jezebel was an Old Testament figure and she was a woman that was married to the king of Israel named uh, Ahab. Ahab. And she was a foreign woman. Was not, she was not a Hebrew. But she married Ahab. And she led Ahab to worship her pagan false gods like Baal and Ashtoreth. And, and led the people of Israel to worship these false gods. And she was mean and conniving and vengeful. And she was just not, not a, a savory figure. So when Jesus calls this woman in the church in Thyatira Jezebel, it's not a compliment. He's speaking of her character and nature. And he's saying she is leading people to do immoral things. That's what's happening. And here's the problem. He says to the church in Thyatira, you are tolerating it. That word tolerate is the word ephemi in the Greek language. And it's in the present tense, which means you're continually tolerating her behavior. The word means to leave it to someone to do something. Listen, with the implication of distancing oneself from the event. So people are saying, okay, there's Jezebel, she's doing her thing, we're just going to kind of keep our distance and let her do her thing. We're not going to address it, we're going to tolerate it in our church family. And her behavior was reaping destructive consequences. And Jesus says, I had this, you tolerate this. Jesus knows the troubling things that are happening in his churches. When we go down the wrong path, we do the wrong thing, Jesus knows, listen, and he cares enough about that issue to address it so that we can get right and glorify him as a church. And then third, he knows the hearts of his people. The hearts of his people. Look what it says in verse 23, the end of that verse. Jesus says, I'm he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Listen, not only does Jesus see our outward behavior, he sees the heart that motivates our behavior. So guess what? You can fool me with your behavior. And I can fool you. We can smile and say the right things and, you know, act the right way when we're around each other at church. But did you know you can do the right things for the wrong reasons? Did you know that? You can have wrong motivations. You can be doing things to impress others rather than for the glory of Christ. And Jesus says, I know, I search your minds and your hearts. I know why you're doing what you're doing. So you can't hide from my omniscient gaze. I know everything going on in your church. Christ knows everything about his church. We need to understand that. Which leads me to the third truth. Christ holds his church accountable. Christ holds his church accountable. What does Jesus say to this church in Thyatira? I want you to notice four aspects of Christ. Number one, 
I want you to notice the standards of Christ. The Bible says there in verse 20. I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of, mark this word, immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So twice, Jesus mentions the word immorality. Now, your translation may uh, say sexual immorality, which is a proper translation because the word in the Greek is the word pornea. Where we get the word pornography from. It speaks of sexually immoral things. And, and, and Jesus says, this woman Jezebel is leading people to do sexually immoral things. Now, the term immorality implies that there is a such thing as morality. Right? I mean, something can't be immoral unless there's some standard that's being violated. So when Jesus calls this woman immorally, saying she is leading people to violate my standard. So what is the standard that Christ has when it comes to sexual intimacy? And I want to be very clear about this and, and, and give you a statement that I think encapsulates the biblical teaching on this issue. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be enjoyed in the secure boundaries of marriage. Listen between a man and a woman. Marriage, I mean, sorry, sexual intimacy is a gift from God to be enjoyed in the secure boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman. Now, it's important we recognize marriage is between a man and a woman. So, wait, why would you say that? Because that's how God defines it. Marriage is the union between a man and a woman. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter. God, God has spoken on this issue. And by the way, did you know something can be legally right but morally wrong? doesn't matter what the highest court in the land says. God says that marriage is the union between a man and a woman. That's how God set it up. That's how God designed it. And we are not free to define it any way we want to. God defines it. And God defines marriage in that way. And he gives married couples the gift of intimacy. It's a gift to be enjoyed. So... Anything outside of those boundaries, adultery, fornication, which is sex before marriage, homosexuality, anything outside of those boundaries, which is sexual intimacy between a man and a woman in the, confine, the, the context of marriage, anything outside of those boundaries is a sin. It's wrong. That's the standard of Christ. That's the, the, the morality of Christ. That's what he calls us to in this area. Anything other than that is a sin. Now, let me show you an interesting verse. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In case you think I'm emphasizing this to too to great of a degree. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 with me. Verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit to the church in Thessalonica, says... For this is the will of God. Now, anytime you see that statement, your ears ought to perk up, right? Everybody look at me for a moment. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Do you want to know God's will for your life? Here it is. You ready? For this is the will of God. Listen, your sanctification, that word means transformation into Christ's likeness. Here it is. He defines it. That you abstain from sexual immorality. 
what the Bible says. God's will for you is to abstain from sexual immorality. Anything other than sexual intimacy enjoyed in the context of marriage between a man and a woman is a sin. It's wrong. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, pornography, all of that is a sin. It's wrong. It's violating God's perfect standard. Now, I want to say this. I think sometimes in our culture, Christians are marginalized for our views. And we're portrayed as old-fashioned fuddy-duds that want to take away everybody's fun. That's kind of how Christians are pictured in the media and, and through other avenues in our culture. And that could not be further from the truth. I think as, as Christians, we want to be careful, listen, to not just denounce the sin. To say, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's a sin, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. We don't want to stop there. We want to hold up Christ's vision for sexual intimacy. You see, it's a gift from God, listen, to be enjoyed. God gives it to married couples to enjoy in that context of marriage. So even when we talk to our young people about purity, I don't think it's enough to say, don't do that, don't do that, you better not do that, stay away from that. No, that's not enough. We need to say, you know what? Sexual intimacy is God's idea. And he tells us it's a good thing. It's a gift to his people, and it is to be enjoyed in the, the, the boundaries of marriage. And so not only do we need to warn our children of the dangers, we need to cast a vision of sexual intimacy as a good thing from the hand of God. Got me on that? So we're not trying to take away people's fun. We're trying to, to, to relate how you are to enjoy that gift from God in its fullness. That's what the standard of Christ is all about. You've got to hold high that standard. This is what the Bible says on these issues. And anything other than intimacy between a man and a woman in the context of marriage is a sin and destroys lives. That's the standard of the Bible. Was I clear enough on that? Let's go to number two, the patience of Christ. Look in verse 21, and this is remarkable. Back in Revelation 2, verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. Isn't that, isn't that remarkable? Jesus says, here's what she's doing, leading people astray, acting like Jezebel, and yet I gave her time to repent. Jesus was patient with her. This speaks of the forbearance of Christ. Has there ever been a time in your life when you needed Jesus to be patient with you? Raise your hand. Anybody? I tell you, there's been times in my life, I'm grateful for the patience of Christ, which lovingly steers me in the right direction, convicts me of my sin, and helps me to, to break free and have victory and go in a new direction. I'm grateful for the patience of Christ in my life. How about you? And even this lady called Jezebel had an opportunity to repent. He says, I'm being patient with her, which leads into the third thing, the mercy of Christ. Look what he says in verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. I gave her time, but she's not repenting. She's not turning from. She's, she's continuing down that road. Now, the implication is this. If she would repent and would turn from that to me, I would restore her. I would forgive her. I would bless her in that. Because repentance was available, restoration in her life was available. But she refused the mercy of Christ. And continued on in the direction she was going. A sinful, destructive direction. But notice here, 
that mercy was available. Now, let me just say this. When we talk about these issues, these intimacy issues, all the things we've talked about this morning, we've got to be clear in holding forth the standards of Christ. Here's what the Bible says about these things. But we've also got to be equally clear about the mercy of Christ. If anyone turns from their sin and embraces Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they can experience complete and total forgiveness and a transformed life. Yes, what you're doing is a sin, but yes, there's mercy available if you'll just turn to Christ. Which, by the way, who in this room is not, is not needy of the mercy of Christ? Anyone in here sinless? It's easy to look at other folks and condemn their sin and forget that we needed a Savior too, isn't it? So we've got to be clear as a church, while we, while we say what you're doing is wrong according to biblical standards, if you'll turn to Christ, you can experience forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus loves you. Jesus is merciful. He's, he's gracious. You say, oh, wait, I, I, I'm not as bad as some of those other folks doing those other things. I've never done some of the things you're talking about this morning. You know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, if you've ever lusted in your heart, you're guilty of adultery in God's eyes. I mean, who in this room would not hang their head in shame if a video replay of their life was shown on the big screen this morning? We're all in need of the mercy of Christ. And here's the wonderful thing. The mercy of Christ is available. Right? If you repent, I'll restore you. But she refused to repent. So we see the standards of Christ and the patience of Christ and the mercy of Christ and finally the judgment of Christ. Because she refused his mercy, she would experience his judgment. Look what the Bible says there in verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. Now, most scholars believe this doesn't refer to her biological children. This speaks of her spiritual offspring. Those that had followed her headlong into that, that immorality. I'll kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and will give to each one of you according to your deeds. And so Jesus says, if, if she continues to refuse me, refuse my mercy, refuse my grace, I will come in devastating judgment. The consequences will be severe. That's what Jesus says. But notice, even in this, there's grace. He says, all the churches, verse 23, will know who I am. In other words, Jesus knows that if he comes against this woman in judgment, the other churches will hear, and they'll be encouraged to stay on the right path. So even his judgment is, a, is an act of grace a, as a warning to the other churches to not get distracted and, and, and led away from following Christ. And so we see here that Christ holds his church accountable. He wants us to deal with issues when we find ourselves going down the wrong path or, or tolerating something that should not be tolerated. He wants us to deal with those issues. And he gives us ways to deal with those issues in the body of Christ. And if we do not deal with those issues, then Christ will come as judge. And that won't be pleasant for anyone. Which leads me to the fourth truth and, and the final truth. We've seen that Christ cares about his church and Christ knows everything about his church and Christ holds his church accountable. But fourth, 
Christ promises a glorious future for His church. There's something glorious for those that stay true to the faith. Look what Jesus says there in verse 25. Or verse 24. I say to you this, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. You just keep doing what you're doing and, and stay on the right path. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes, he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now what's happening here? Who is the one who overcomes? The word there in the Greek language is the word Nikon. It's where we get the word Nike from. It means to conquer. It means to be victorious. And Jesus says, if you're victorious, you're going to get some glorious rewards. Now, who are the folks who are victorious? Listen, these are people who have exhibited they are truly saved because they have remained faithful to the end. And so let me say it like this. Someone that names the name of Christ and then falls away from the faith did not lose their salvation. They were indicating by their falling away that they were never truly saved in the first place. That makes sense? Someone that's truly Christ will always be Christ. But someone that turns their back on Christ was, is demonstrating by their, by their falling away that they were not really saved in the first place. So these who overcome are those folks that are demonstrating the reality of their salvation because they're faithful. They're making the finish line. They're the real deal. They've truly been born again by the grace of God. And he says, those who overcome, I'm going to give them two things. Number one, I'm going to give them the gift of reigning with Christ. We will reign with Christ. Verse 26, he says, To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. I have also received authority from my Father. Here Jesus quotes Psalm 2, and in Psalm 2, the Father, speaking to the Son, says this, I'm going to give you representatives from every nation who will worship you. And you will rule and reign over the nations. And here Jesus is saying, my true followers, listen, my true followers will reign with me. And so I believe this speaks of a, the millennial reign of Christ. There's coming in a thousand year reign when Jesus returns. He's going to set up his kingdom on the earth and he's going to allow his people, his followers to reign with him during that a thousand year reign. Now here's what that doesn't mean. I don't think it means that some situations are going to arise and Jesus is going to lean over to me and say, hey, wait, what should we do? How should we handle this? I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed. I'm stymied. Wade, give me some insight. That's not what it means at all. I think what it means is that you and I, as Christ followers, will have a front row seat to see the wisdom and justice and mercy and authority of Christ on display. And we're going to be there cheering him on, saying, yes, Jesus, you are so good. Yes, you are so faithful. Yes, you are so just. Yes, you are so kind. Yes, you are so patient. Yes, you are so wise. And we will be there with him to see his glory on display. That's a privilege, is it not? But secondly, not only will we reign with Christ, we will experience Christ. Look what Jesus says there in verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. So the one who is victorious, the, one, the true follower of Christ, that makes it to the finish line without falling away, indicating they're the real deal, they will experience the morning star. Now what is the morning star? We don't have to wonder. Turn to Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22. 
what the Bible says in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. Watch this. The bright morning star. So who's the bright morning star? Who's the bright morning star? Jesus is. And he says, the one who overcomes, the one who conquers, the victorious one, my true follower, will get me. They get as a gift, as a reward, they get the bright morning star. That means we get to experience Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Won't that be wonderful? I mean, I can't even wrap my mind around what that's going to be like, but it will be incredible to receive as a gift in eternity the bright and morning star himself, Jesus Christ. I love that song. I can only imagine, which speaks of what it's going to be like when we first see the bright morning star. Will, will I stand in his presence? Or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine. We can only at this point in our journey imagine what heaven's going to be like. But Jesus tells us we will reign with him and we get the bright morning star as a precious possession to enjoy forever and ever and ever and ever. So notice this message. Jesus says some very direct confrontational things here. Motivated by his mercy. Motivated by his compassion. Jesus, listen, Jesus cares so much about his church that he'll speak truth to his church and to his people so they can live a life that honors and glorifies him. A life of true peace, true fulfillment, true joy. Christ cares about his church. Christ cares about Longview Point Baptist Church. Back